This episode sponsored by The New Press, publisher of The New World We Need, stories and lessons from America's unsung environmental movement, defending homes, strengthening communities, restoring the land. The World We Need offers a vivid look at the people protecting America's communities against environmental degradation and racism. Visit theworldweneed.com to find out how you can help. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. A little more than a month after the Parkland shooting, former Congressman Steve King's Facebook account posted a photo of student activist X Gonzalez wearing a Cuban flag patch alongside text that began, quote, this is how you look when you claim Cuban heritage yet don't speak Spanish, end quote. And though many people would be ashamed to agree with anything King has said, the idea that one must speak Spanish perfectly, of course, in order to be considered Latino is a widely held belief. But the term Latino encompasses dozens of countries and territories, which in turn include people of different races, religions, and those whose first language might be Quechua or English rather than Spanish. For the August issue of the magazine, Hector Tobar went on a 9,000-mile road trip across the United States to visit a variety of Latino communities in order to explore the term's meaning and the diversity within it. I spoke with Tobar about his reporting and the misconceptions from all sides of the political spectrum about Latino identity. This piece reveals what people who identify as Latino or Latinx have always known, which is that country of origin or U.S. territory of origin, profession, generation, region, race, and many other factors change how that identity is expressed and in turn how one votes. So when you were writing this piece, how did you imagine your audience and what gaps in their knowledge did you want to fill? Wow. Well, I think I was writing for the United States reader who cares about his country and the people in it, and who is a little bit perplexed by this term, which circulates so freely, right? Latino or now Latinx a little bit more, and which is equated with the major you know, races of the United States. Now, everybody knows Latino is really an ethnic term. It's not supposed to be a racial term. But in practice, it's treated as equal to a racial term. And so I wanted people to sort of learn what I had learned, both in my driving around the country, but also in my previous exploration over many years of the whole notion of Latino identity, which is that it's this made-up term. It's something that is a product of United States history and of the evolution of the term white and of the evolution of the sociological relationships that we have as Americans. You know, Latino as we know it today is an expression of this deep-seated inequality and of resistance to, uh, you know, racism and oppression of people who are of Latin American descent. So I, I just, I wanted, I wanted to sort of pass on what I knew to people who care about this country. Right. And 
You've driven across the United States and documented your visits with different communities in Translation Nation. And I think it also influenced uh, your hybrid fiction book, The Last Great Robe Bum. So aside from COVID-19, which is a gigantic aside, how was this trip different? Is there a perceptible shift in the culture that you could feel? Oh, absolutely. I, I feel the Latino community today, as compared to the Latino community I knew, let's say, in the 1980s when I first became a, a newspaper reporter, or in the early 2000s when I wrote Translation Nation, uh, the Latino community today is more mature politically. It's more aware of itself and its relationship to race in the United States and how, uh, how fraught right, that category is. It's a community that suffered the slings and arrows of the last two presidential campaigns and a candidate who was an explicit you know, xenophobe. And so all of that has made us, has forced us to reflect on who we are and where we stand. And the other thing that's changed is I can just say all of that about myself. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a more perceptive uh, writer. I'm someone who's more concerned with untangling and decoding these categories instead of taking them as a given, because I've realized during the course of a career writing about, about Latino people, just how, how thin and how complex and how uh, contradictory the category really is. Right. And it's, it's something that's only natural, if you stop to think about it, that, you know, how many countries right. of origin we're talking about here, and not just Spanish language, you know, we're talking because Latino, as you say, in the piece, excludes people who speak indigenous languages, but it can also include people who are Brazilian, right. which is the largest country in South America. So how do you feel like Brazilian Americans fit into the already problematic category of Latino? And was it a conscious choice not to include our Lucifone neighbors or it, did it just shake out that way? Oh, I mean, there's a lot of people who I couldn't include just because I only had 7,000 words, which is actually quite a lot in, in the U.S. magazine publishing, <laughs> but not nearly enough when you're talking about, you know, such a rich community. You know, I, I worked in Brazil for a while. I was the Rio de Janeiro bureau chief of the LA Times, and I, I know a lot about the Brazilian community in this country. And I think that Brazilian people in this country have a lot in common with people of Latin American descent. And they share many experiences, and actually many have created families together. Uh, there are many sort of Brazilian Latino families. But on the other hand, there is a very distinct uh, Brazilian experience in terms of not just language, but culture, and the very unique experience of race relations in, in Brazil, which also I mean, have you know, some similarity to the Caribbean experience. But absolutely. So I, you know, I, I think, yes, I think that that the Brazilian is a category that overlaps with and sometimes can be included in Latino. I think uh, especially if you marry into a Latino family, if you're a Brasileiro who marries into a Latino family, then, then you're going you're gonna to see those similarities and, and live them and maybe even embrace them. Right. And I, I want to hone in on this again, despite the many differences, how would you characterize maybe that core shared experience? I mean, a large part of it comes from Spanish colonialism and the experience of colonialism, period. But how else would you characterize it, that shared 
the shared thing. Right. I, I think that after many years, I, I finally arrived at the realization that the term Latino really means two things. It means mixed. Latino is a synonym for mixed because Latin America is the product of all of this incredible mixing, right? So Latino is, is, is indigenous and Af- African and it's European. So, so it's a synonym for mixing. And the other part, and for me, the most powerful um, sort of central metaphor with which I understand Latino as an identity is the, is the notion of empire. Latino is the result of the actions of United States imperialism, right? It's the result of the United States imposing its will on Latin America in reinforcing the underdevelopment of Latin America and causing all of the migration that has taken place over the last you know, century, especially, right? Of the shifting borders, right? The United, United States imperialism conquers the Southwest, takes more than a third of Mexico's territory, and creates a people who are colonized within the borders of the United States, right? It creates New Mexicans, right? It creates the Californios. If you are Latino, it means that somewhere in your past, you have a story that involves United States power and empire and colonized people, right? If you're Cuban, your life story is tied to the history of an island whose politics has been shaped from the very beginning by United States imperialism. Right? The Cuban Revolution in the 1960s is a reaction to uh, United States imperialism, the creation of this communist Stalinist state right, just across the Strait of Florida from the United States is a reaction to U.S. imperialism. The people who are forced to migrate, uh, who feel forced to migrate right, because of the lack of, of freedom or the lack of opportunity in Cuba, uh, those people have lives that have been shaped by this struggle right, between the United States empire and, and the colonial peoples of the Americas. And that's true in a city like Los Angeles or New York, too. There's this sort of internal colonialism that takes place uh, in these cities where there's an imposition of all these forms of uh, oppression and segregation. So to me, Latino is a story about empire. No, I think that's very, very apt and very true. And you've mentioned how that played out in different parts of the country. And I think one of the most valuable aspects of of which there are many of your pieces that, you know, just showing that it's not just Miami Cubans who are voting for Trump. The Democratic Party seems to sort of rely on this message that we're the less racist party and you should therefore vote for us. However, as your piece describes, people have all sorts of different material needs that aren't necessarily addressed or ideas about what, you know, Trump's policies actually are. So could you talk a bit about, um, and maybe even the people you weren't able to include in the piece, what those things were and what those fears or what they felt, you know, the Democratic Party was not giving them? Right. I think uh, across the country, roughly 30% of Latinos voted for Trump. And I think that his appeal among Latino voters is similar to his appeal among white working class voters, right? I think the the big problem of the Democratic Party uh, in the last election, and in fact, to this day, is that it doesn't have a theory about why America is broken that working people understand, 
And so there is no real labor party in the United States anymore, right? <laughs> there isn't. And there hasn't been for, you know, for a generation. And so, so I think a lot of the Latino people who voted for Trump did so for the same reason um, that white people did. In fact, they're, they're neighbors for each, you know, to each other. You know, I went to Idaho, a place uh, into a town where I think 70% or so of the population um, voted for Trump in a town that's, you know, a Latino majority town. And it's, you know, just talking to people there, they're, they're expressing their skepticism to the, Demo- to the Democratic Party platform, the same skepticism that their neighbors are, are expressing, right? They're farm people in a place where they don't see very much of the benefits, right, of the, of the welfare state, you know? They don't, they're, not, they're not receiving the benefits of Democratic Party policies, right, that sort of embrace free trade and that um, they're, they're not seeing the benefits of those policies. And so they're concerned, you know, they're concerned about high taxes. You know, they're concerned about the Democratic Party's embrace of urban issues. They see themselves as this forgotten sort of uh, majority. And so um, in South Texas, which is the place that saw the most dramatic shifts in the entire United States, even though South Texas as a whole voted with a narrow majority for Biden, in the 2016 election, they voted, you know, like with 30 or 40 percent pluralities for Hillary Clinton. And so there was a big shift towards Trump. A lot of it had to do with the fact that, um, you know, uh, Trump was able to portray Biden as an enemy of the oil industry. Right. People uh, in Texas, uh, especially in South Texas, rely on oil industry jobs. And so the idea that there was this president who cared so much about saving the planet that he wanted to stop fracking and, you know, he wanted to reduce, uh, you know, uh, carbon emissions so much so that he was willing to sacrifice uh, jobs in the petroleum sector. That really was a big concern to a lot of uh, working people in South Texas. Now, against that, there is the knowledge that Donald Trump is a complete, you know, xenophobe and that he has insulted uh, Latino people and people of color, you know, across the board. A lot of Latino people have a very strong identification with African-American struggle. You know, Mm African-Americans resist, you know, white supremacy. For a lot of us, we grow up with African-American heroes, right? We grew up reading Richard Wright and Toni Morrison and because that's all we had, right? That's all we had that showed us how to resist uh, white supremacy. And so um, the fact that that Latino people still voted with a very, very large majority for, for Joe Biden and the Democrats, I think reflects the knowledge that the, the Republican Party has, has almost completely embraced xenophobia as its central platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I've heard this about Asian Americans as well, where somebody, because they they own a business, they are very, they, they want to buy into the American dream. And they will put aside that xenophobia until it's the Wuhan virus, until it really comes too close to home. And I don't think people maybe outside of media bubbles really understand that a lot of people just, you know, people's politics don't always cohere. Not everybody is just single one party died in the wool because there's flexibility, there are contradictions and people have to live with those contradictions. But, you know, when you were reporting in the, I believe it was South Texas, you're talking to this man who said, you know, 
his life was worse under Obama because there were so many deportations. But also under Obama, his son was a DACA recipient and he could go to college. So there, there are these, I guess, what is a better way? Again, you have decades of experience as a journalist. What is a better way to kind of penetrate and report on those contradictions in a way that is helpful, not only to people who want to understand their fellow Americans, but also to, you know, people in the different parties who want to try and reach reach constituents. Well, yeah, I think that for starters, there is uh, in this country, in the mass media, a very simplified and sort of infantile understanding of how Latino people think and act, right? Because there are so few really rich and textured representations of Latino people in the popular media, people have a very stereotyped view of what the Latino psyche and the Latino soul is, you know? And so my approach is to begin with the story of the individual and the story of a community, right? And how individuals come to understand this country, the things that they identify with, the things that they hate, the things that they really uh, make them feel small and inhuman. And so I think that you, ha- you know, it's just such a that's a it's it's such a huge question. There's so much, there's so much history of the Latino community that just average Americans don't know about. You know, I, I spent a big part of this piece describing the lives of farm workers in Oregon and Idaho, and it's it's an epic. It's an epic that 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 most Americans uh, don't know about. You know, to arrive in this country with so little. To live in you know marginalized parts of, of farm towns or in trailers on the edges of cities, and to experience you know two generations, uh, most of you I interview are second, third generation uh, you know children of farm workers, mm-hmm. and to have lived through all that it shapes your worldview, it shapes your understanding of how the United States works, mm-hmm. and so I think that the most important thing, which is what I try to do in this piece, is to represent all of these civic and political actors, these United States residents and citizens, as people with their own histories that don't quite fit into Americans' understanding of what their histories are, you know. And I think that's a process that's just starting. You know, we're just treated as these simple people, you know, we're, we're seen as the, as the labor force of the United States, we're the people who clean, who keep the roads open and, you know, build houses and do all these essential things. But we're not seen as people who have this interior intellectual life. And I guess, you know, and, and that's what's missing. I think it's, it's the Latino, the Mexican, the Guatemalan, you know, the Cuban, the Puerto Rican person as a person with this rich intellectual interior life is really what's missing. And so if you don't see a people like that, then you're going to only have this very simplistic understanding of what their political choices are. Mm-hmm. And and that's what my piece has attempted is to sort of change and to fill a little bit of that vacuum. And, to, and in fact, my whole work as a writer over the course of more than 30 years has been to fill that vacuum. Yeah. I mean, you gave an interview where you described the pornography of immigration, which is, and I I would agree with this, there are so many news stories about Latinos that are almost exclusively limited to 
the experience of undocumented migrants, which is an important story to tell, but you have an image of a family being apprehended at the border and then stuck in a cell. And so for racists, that's an image that reinforces the notion of migrants as criminals. And for people on the other side of the aisle, it creates this paternalistic kind of view of like, oh, these poor people, and they only ever suffer. Right. And it's exactly, it's an, and, and not, not only that, it's an incomplete, the portrait of Latino people, even of undocumented immigrants, isn't even complete as to being undocumented immigrants, because your average undocumented immigrant has one memory of humiliation, or, or maybe a few, but also has a lifetime of making do and a lifetime of succeeding and a lifetime of establishing the daily routines of a life in the United States. And that's, that is never, that's, that's never portrayed. It's very rarely portrayed. It's definitely not portrayed, you know, at the highest levels of American literature. No, it's not portrayed in American film and television. You don't see that. You don't see the richness of this, the the complexity of this experience, right? People and all their foibles. And it's and, and it's extremely frustrating. And so, you know, think about our understanding, the average American's understanding of the black experience now as compared to 20 or 30 years ago. You know, think of all the work right. that black playwrights and thinkers and social critics and novelists have done to give Americans this really rich, uh, you know, portrait of African-American life. You know, they've accomplished so much. And that has helped to raise the understanding of our, you know, of how we think about race relations, especially when we think about black and white relations. Unfortunately, you know, we as Latino writers and creators, we haven't been given yet those opportunities. We're a much younger community. Our bench isn't quite as deep yet, <laughs> right? And so, um, so uh, I, I think you know a lot of a lot of what we're talking about is related to that. Absolutely, and I mean, I think there's also. And we're talking about misperceptions. There's this thing called accent bias, where, where if you assume someone has an accent or maybe can't speak English perfectly exactly well, that they are somehow unintelligent or they don't have that rich interior life, which also impedes understanding or even the curiosity outside of, well, how are they going to vote? But I wanted to ask again, sort of referring to the fact that you've made this trip. You know, you've got you've gone cross country visiting different communities uh, before. Faith is another really commonly misunderstood aspect about Latinos, and people on the outside have this assumption that everyone is a Catholic, even though evangelicalism has swept through all parts of Latin America. It is a just as strong a force in those countries as it is here, and you know, a lot of people. I mean, I live in New York, so there's a huge evangelical presence, Central America, South Americans, churches. So how would you explain, you know, how has that changed marked Latinos in the United States? And for those who are Catholic, what significance does Pope Francis hold? Well, yeah, I think, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. There has been a really big Latino evangelical community for many decades now in the United States. And it reflects the growth of, of that movement also in Latin America, as you point out, all, all up and down, you know, uh, Latin America. But, you know, even to be Catholic is something that has lots of different shadings to it. 
you can be an extremely pious, conservative, right-wing, anti-abortion Catholic, like the kind of people who sometimes picket the Planned Parenthood here in my neighborhood in Los Angeles, or, uh, but you could also be a, you know, liberation theology, lefty, radical, uh, you know, uh, Catholic. Um, and there are many, many movements of progressive Catholics all across the United States. These are the people who, back in the day, created asylum for Central American immigrants, right, when there was a big asylum movement in this country. You know, people like my friend, Father Greg Boyle, who works in the who worked for many years in the projects in East Los Angeles with gang members, trying to tone down uh, gang violence, but also promoting this idea of the gang member as a human being, <laughs> right? As opposed to a, an evil villain. Right. And so that's, you know, and, and, and with this very powerful Catholic message of love. So yeah, there's this incredible diversity. I think that there is a, across all of these different religious uh, groupings, there is a strong movement towards cultural conservatism. I think you would find anywhere uh, in the United States where Latinos vote that there are many Latino voters who are not quite on board with the idea of abortion rights. Of course, that's changing, right? As the community ages and people, you know, become more aware. Every generation of every generation of voters, there's more feminists. <laughs> it's just, it's just, you know, <laughs> it's just inevitable. I see it among my students. Yeah. You know, I'm a teacher at the University of California, and um, and so there's a growing consciousness, right, of women's rights and of feminism in the Latino community as elsewhere. But still, there is this very powerful streak of conservatism, and so this is something that uh, that Republican uh, candidates have been able to to use to draw Latino voters. Uh, you know, George uh, W. Bush did it. His dad, George H.W. Bush, also was able to sort of draw a lot of Latino voters, not to mention Ronald Reagan, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think there, that there is this very rich and varied religious spectrum. Now, also throw into this something that a lot of people don't talk about, but which to me is also a spiritual um, element of the community, is that there's this growing embrace of indigeneity, right? Of, of, in, of an indigenous yes. worldview. This is something that, especially among the younger generation of Latino Latinx people, uh, is a really powerful thread in the, in in our community. Is this idea that we uh, need to understand that we have almost all of us have this indigenous past. It's been hidden from us. It is in my family. In my case, I interviewed, I grilled my grandparents, who were never never revealed to me who our indigenous ancestors were. Because for them, it was a source of shame and a source of bullying and oppression, right, in, in, in the Guatemala and that they grew up in. And so that's, I think, now a really growing thread in the spirituality of, of the Latino community. Yeah, that's, I believe in many parts of Central America, to call someone stupid, you would say, que indio, right. which is, it's horrible. But the, the self-hatred, again, that's coming from colonialism. And it's also coming from the U.S. too, as, you know, trying to pigeonhole everyone. Yeah, and I, you know, you mentioned before too, accent bias, and it's the same thing. I think that is the stereotype of Latino people is to equate them, you know, with the portrait that the racist portrait people have had for centuries about Native American people in this country. Sort of the racist ideas that people have about Native American people are in many ways 
the racist ideas that they have about Latino people, especially more mestizo Latino people, is that, you know, is that we're not very smart, that we're passive, that we're, you know, um, innocents who don't understand the complex world of Western civilization. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As you were saying before about how much more greatly black identity is understood now, it's the desire to understand complexity is there. It's just, we have to kind of get there. And I, you know, the Chicano movement in the sixties and the fight for civil rights for Latinos. And, you know, it was so amazing to see Reyes Lopez Tijerina in the pages of Harper's, you know, discussed as, you know, he was speaking of religion. He was a preacher who said the treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was invalid. And he organized people to sort of fight against the U.S. government to reinstate that land. And that history, that history of resistance, that history, or even like, you know, Cesar Chavez, the United Farm Workers, all of that, where there was so much participation from white Americans boycotting certain types of produce to help their cause, it seems really lost and kind of forgotten. And I guess why do you feel that? Because again, it's not that long ago. <laughs> it's not that long ago at all. But why do you feel like that forgetting has taken place? I think that all societies go through this process of forgetting the the dreamers, forgetting the the radicals, you know, forgetting the people who have this radical imagination, right? And so, you know, um, there is now in you know in U.S. popular culture. There is this embrace of the black radical imagination, right? Uh, of, of the people who were in their time were seen as complete outsiders to the mainstream, uh, the Black Panthers, Malcolm X, right? Now Malcolm X and the Black Panthers are receiving, you know, big Hollywood, the big Hollywood treatment. <laughs> you know, they're they're the mm-hmm. stars of these yeah. huge movies in which people sort of embrace go back and say, oh my God, Fred Hampton, Fred Hampton killed, you know, uh, in Chicago was really this incredibly charismatic leader, right? Uh, And now this wonderful movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, recreates that time, this this time of of just incredible idealism. And Latinos have that same history, you know, the, the embrace of the term Chicano is one that is more or less, you know, coincident in time with the idea of black power, the black power movement, right? Chicano becomes this term in the 1960s and 70s uh, used by Mexican-American people who have an attitude, who believe that it's their mission to resist white supremacy, right? And even that language now, you know, it's it's so widespread to to, to speak of the white supremacist streak in American uh, society. Embracing that as a relatively new thing, right? Which is something that, yeah. You know, Malcolm X and the Black Panthers were talking about, you know, so many years ago and, and being branded as pariahs for doing so. So the Latino community has its own form of the, you know, the Black radical imagination. It has these dreamers who did crazy things, who did sometimes self-destructive things and whose movements flamed out, you know, like the Brown Berets uh, in East Los Angeles, who you know, actually tried to take over Catalina Island and proclaim it, you know, this sovereign territory of the of Aztlan. And, uh, and so, you know, I think that with time, there will be a, a period when those 
when those icons are uh, embraced um, as the complex and interesting people that they were, right? And and today, I mean, I think there's a whole new generation of people who have this um, radical imagination who are trying to imagine a world um, in which you know capitalism is replaced by a, a more kind, <laughs> a more kind and just way. <laughs> Of, of dealing with each other, of, mm-hmm. uh, of relationships. And there's a really strong anti-corporate, you know, uh, thread now, I think, among young Latino people that I've met. And so, um, you know, it hasn't died and it, and it will, uh, the, the radicals of our past and our present will, will soon be celebrated, I, I, I am sure. <laughs> and so, you know, despite the problems of the term Latino, there is some solidarity among people who, uh, you know, identify as that and that, you know, this identity that was created to render people more exploitable, right? which seems, at least on its face, like a good example of using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, to paraphrase Audre Lorde, talking about how this sort of approach doesn't work. But how do you tend to think about this? Can Latino identity be the basis for strong solidarity despite or because of its history? Yeah, I, you know, like I said before, I think I said before that Latino was um, an expression of empire. It was also an expression of mixing. And the other thing that Latino means is alliances. It's an alliance, you know. Mm. It's, you know, it's in my own family, you know, my, my wife is Mexican-American. She's Chicana. I'm Guatemalteco. You know, my family's from Guatemala, um, but also an Angelino. So my kids, well, the easiest thing for them to identify as is Latino because it's a term that embraces all of that. Mm-hmm. So, so Latino is uh, a Salvadoran and a Cuban, you know, couple meeting in Georgia and realizing that they have a lot in common. You know, starting with the Spanish and their backgrounds, starting with, you know, a kind of shared understanding of extended family, how it should work. Right? Grandmothers and grandfathers tend to be more present, you know, in a Latino family than they might be in other cultures. Uh, so Latino is an expression of all of that. It's an expression of this shared experience. So, for example, in my piece, you know, I interview this legislator, uh, Teresa Alonso León, and she is uh, of indigenous heritage. She is a Purépecha uh, Indian. That's her, her family were Purépecha Indians from the state of Guerrero. She identifies very strongly as Purépecha. Um, she, they do dances for, you know, for, for, from her culture when they do the annual parade the annual Latino Pride Parade that they do in Woodburn, Oregon. She, she and her relatives do these dances. But at the same time, she's starting a Latino political group that identify, that uses the term Latino as this identifier, right? Because that brings her, uh, it creates an alliances for her. It, bring, it creates, it's an expression of a coalition. She's bringing together all these different Latino elected officials from the state of Oregon and Portland and other parts of the state. And, you know, Obviously, she's the only one who's Purépecha Indian. She, she know, there's not that many who have an indigenous um, identity that they can, you know, grasp onto. And so, Latino is an expression of this shared experience. And so, I think that's, I think that's useful. I think it's, it's a shorthand way of talking about this complex history that I've, that I've been, uh, you know, talking about, and that I mentioned in my piece, this history of empire. It's a way of talking about these huge forces in our lives that dominate our lives. And our relationship to those forces. Right. And I feel obligated to ask this, even though it is a bit of a non sequitur, but all over the news, there's 
Texas versus the United States, which is a recent federal court decision that ruled DACA was unlawful and put a freeze on new applications. So what was your reaction to that news? And to go back to the question of, you know, the pornography of immigration, do we still need those kinds of stories to continue while Biden is in office? There's still kids in camps. I think, yeah, well, first of all, it's extremely important that the news media cover what's happening with immigration in all its aspects. Absolutely. I, you know, and I don't, I've never actually argued to the contrary. But I think when I think of Texas versus the United States, and I think about this lawsuit, I just think about the way in which Republican leaders, especially, and conservative leaders have, have transformed the Latino immigrant experience into a performance. They've made us like these extras in their image of the world as this place of chaos. And so we're the masses, you know, lined up at the border. And what they've done is they've taken the lives of real people. They've taken real people and they've transformed their lives into this constant sense of menace, this constant sense of persecution. So, you know, if you meet anybody who's a DACA recipient, who's undocumented, you know, they're constantly being assaulted with the news of their status changing or of there being new regulations. Now you have to, you know, you have to renew your DACA status every six months instead of every year or every two years, you know, which is something that the Trump administration did. And so it's exhausting. It's, it's sort of like this, you know, the sacrificial goat, you know, that everybody sort of beats and then slaughters. And so what the Republican Party is doing it's, is transforming Latino people and as undocumented immigrants especially into this animal that they beat over and over again, you know, blaming because it's the only thing that they can think of, the only entity they can think of to blame for how messed up our country is, for its, you know, for its apparent decline right into this, these extremes of wealth and poverty and homelessness. The only, you know, people they can think to blame, even Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz, you know, Cuban, oh, Canadian yeah. Him descent, especially. <laughs> you know, steps forward and says that the yeah. explosion of COVID cases in Texas is due to, quote unquote, illegal aliens, you know, entering the state. When in fact, the increase in COVID in, in rural America is due to the fact that, you know, so many Republicans are discouraging people from vac getting vaccinated. So even the Latino immigrant becomes the explanation, even for things that should have an explanation in science, right? <laughs> you know, that's how, that's how, right. how extreme yeah. this is. And it's become, you know, it's increasingly absurd and empty, you know? And so it's, it's I, to me, it is absolutely exhausting. And, and I think that there just, there just needs to be, we just need to, you know, rise up really collectively, individually, and assert our humanity and our dignity, you know, and, uh, you know, it's just, it, it is really overwhelming. It's just absolutely overwhelming. And I think that Latino thinkers, Latino writers, Latino activists, we're just all numb. Well, I think we've been numbed by this over the course of the last, you know, 20 years. It's just, it really is numbing. Yeah. And it again, as you say, it's very tired, but they still get mileage out of it, even in the most surprising places. I mean, going back to your your approach for this story, 
and, you know, talking to people, talking about how they relate to their communities, expressing that, you know, as a veteran reporter, how do you approach that task? The task of finding someone, really getting to know them, finding those connections between, you know, and establishing a rapport, basically, because this isn't, you know, just right. like, you know, you, you're just hanging out and you're like, oh, hey, man, come over here. Can I ask yeah. you some questions? Like, it's, 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 yeah. You know, I think that the biggest mistake or the biggest sin most journalists commit when they approach someone to interview is to treat them as an issue. Mm. And I know, I know this because I used to, you know, I, I did daily journalism for, you know, a couple of decades. And so when you do a daily journalism story, you're going to do a story about an issue and you look for people and you look for facts that illustrate this issue that you want to write about. So when you go interview somebody, you ask them about their relationship to the issue and you look for the facts, the details in their lives that help you illustrate the story about the issue. And what I think I've learned to do, mostly because I started writing novels in between all of this, and now I have this career as a, you know, as a literary novelist and a literary nonfiction writer, is that you have to, when you interview somebody, you have to see the whole person. You have to treat them as a complete person. Because that's really, that's the only way they feel real to me on the page. And also, it's what every human being deserves to be treated with respect, even when they're you know, being represented in the two-dimensional space uh, of, of, a, of a newspaper article or a magazine story. And so I, when I interview somebody, I'm hoping to be surprised. I'm hoping to learn something that doesn't fit within the expectations that I might have for an interview. I want to be surprised. You know, I interviewed this woman who's very conservative in South Texas, and I found her by driving up and down the streets I wanted to find somebody who, you know, was a Trump supporter. And I drove him down the streets until I found a house with a huge Trump flag. And I knocked on the door and she invited me in. And it just so happened Fox News was on the television, she, which she watched religiously. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, what I loved about that interview was how funny she was. She was hilarious. She says, "Oh, I don't go to Mexico. The only good thing they have, the only good thing they have there is avocados, <laughs> you know." And it's like, and she said so many things that were just really um, outrageous and crazy, and also very Tejano. You know, she was just really Tejana. She spoke in this mm. wonderful Spanglish that everybody speaks with uh, in in South Texas. Almost everybody does. And so I, I love I love being surprised. And so what I try to do when I write is to capture that sense of surprise. So, you know, to meet, and then to meet these, you know, pro-Trump Cubans who also praise the communist regime for creating opportunity for poor people like them, you know? <laughs> so this Cuban family is there, they're arguing amongst themselves in front of me about, you know, well, you know, they, the communists, they did a lot of bad things, but you know what, if it wasn't for them and the education they gave everybody, my sons would still be shining shoes, you know? And so that, really? that to me is, um, those surprises reveal the complexity of real life, you know? And that's sort of been a theme of this discussion, right? Is that real life is infinitely more complex and interesting, right? Than our simplified, stereotypical, or even issue-centered understanding of what the issues are. So when I interview somebody, 
I try to approach them with an open mind. I try to go deeper into their family histories. I almost always will ask somebody uh, about their parents or about um, you know when they came to live where they live. I interviewed a man in Idaho who uh, is a uh, you know legal resident but not a U.S. citizen who can't vote, but told me that if he could have voted, he would have voted for Trump. And just by asking him about his family, he's this found out he's the he's a Mexican immigrant. He's you know he's a, a son of farm workers who worked a big part of his life as a farm worker. And so I just like I like people leading me into the little novels of their lives. You know the the sort of the epic element of their story. Everybody has an epic to tell, and you can find out the basic parameters of the epic in about ten or fifteen minutes. <laughs> you know if you are patient yeah. enough and <laughs> curious enough, and 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 that's how I approach my interviews. Is I believe everybody has something to teach me. Everybody has something to teach me. Everybody has something to share with me that's going to make me feel like it's my very first interview ever. And I've, you know, and I just, and I love that about it, um, about, about being a journalist and being an interviewer. Well, I feel like I've learned something. Oh. So thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. And thanks for making this time. No, thank you. And thanks to Harper's for, uh, for giving me this assignment. I, I think it's a unique thing in the history of U.S. magazine journalism I don't know if a United States magazine has ever, you know, paid a Latino writer to travel 9,000 miles across the United States and write about Latino identity. So I'm so grateful to Harper's. I grew up reading Harper's and uh, it formed me as a writer and to see my words in that beautiful Harper's font was to me one of the great thrills of my career. So, so thank you to Harper's too. Excellent. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 